Chapter 7, Part 1 of The Children of the Abbey This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roth Chapter 7 She alone, heard, felt, and seen, possesses every thought feels every sense, and pens in every vein. Books are but former downers, tedious friends, and set amid the social band he sits, lonely and unattentive, from his tongue. The unfinished period falls, while, while away, on swelling thoughts his wafted spirit flies, to the rain bosom of his distant fair, Thompson. Howard was no stranger to the manner in which hours rolled away at the cottage. He hovered round it and seized every interval of Lord Mortimer's absence to present himself before Amanda. His emotions betrayed his feelings, and Amanda effected reserve towards him, in hopes of suppressing his passion. A passion, she now began to think, when hopeless, must be dreadful. Howard was a Pray to melancholy, but not for himself alone did he mourn. Fears for the safety and happiness of Amanda added to his dejection. He dreaded that Lord Mortimer, perhaps, like too many of the fashionable men, might take no scruple of availing himself of any advantage which could be derived from a predilection in his favour. He knew him, it is true, to be amiable, but in opposition to that, he knew him to be volatile, and sometimes vowed, and trembled for the unsuspecting credulity of Amanda. Thought lost to me, exclaimed the unhappy young man. Oh, never, sweetest Amanda, mayest thou be lost to thyself. He had received many proofs of esteem and friendship from Lord Mortimer. He therefore studied how he might harmonize without offending and save Amanda without injuring himself. It at last occurred to him that the pulpit would be the surest way of effecting his wishes, where the subject addressed to all might particularly strike one for whom it was intended, without appearing as if designed for that purpose, and timely convince him, if, indeed, he meditated any injurious design against Amanda of his flagrance. On the following Sunday, as he expected, Lord Mortimer and Amanda attended service. His lordship's pew was opposite the one he sat in, and we feel his eyes too often wandered in that direction. The youthful monitor at last ascended the pulpit. His text was from Jeremiah, and to the following effect, she weeped sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she had none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. After a slight introduction, in which he regretted that the declension of moral principles demanded such an exhortation as he was about to give, he commenced his subject. He described a young female, adorned with beauty and innocence, walking forward in the path of integrity. 
with a virtuous education had early marked for her to take, and rejoicing as it went with all around her, when, in the midst of happiness, unexpected calamities suddenly surprised and precipitated her from prosperity into the deepest distress. He described the benefits she derived in this trying period from early implanted virtue and religion. Taught by them, he proceeded, the lovely mourner turns not to be the word for consolation. No, she looks up to her creator for comfort, whose supporting aid is a particularly promise to afflict the wolf. Cheered by them, she is able to exert her little talents of genius and taste and draw upon industry for her future support. Her active virtues, he thinks the best proof of submission she can give to the will of heaven, and in the laudable exertions, she finds a conscious peace, which the mere possession of fortune could never bestow. Routers employed, a son of perfidy sees and marks her for his prey, because he is at once lovely and helpless. Her unsuspecting credulity lays her open to his arts, and his blandishments by degrees allure her heart. The snare which he has spread at last involves her. With the inconstancy of libertinism, he soon deserts her, and again is he plunged into distress. But mark the difference of her first and second fall. Conscience no longer lends its opposing aid to stem her sorrow. Despair instead of hope arises. Without one friend to soothe the pangs of death, one pitying soul to whisper peace to her departing spirit, insulted, too, perhaps, by some unfeeling being, whom one of similar temptations alone, perhaps, safe from similar imprudences, she sinks an early victim to wretchedness. Horror paused. The fullness of his heart mounted to his eyes, with involuntarily turned and rested upon Amanda. Interested by his simple and pathetic eloquence, she had risen and leaned toward the pew, her head resting on her hand, and her eyes fastened on his face. Lord Mortimer had also risen, and alternately gazed upon Howard and Amanda, particularly watching the latter, to see how the subject would affect her. He at last saw the tears trickling down her cheeks, the distresses of her own situation, and the stratagems of Belgrave made her, in some respect, perceive a resemblance between herself and the picture Hover had drawn. Lord Mortimer was unutterably affected by her tears. A faint sickness seized him. He sunk upon the seat and covered his face with his handkerchief to hide his emotion. But by the time service was over, it was pretty well dissipated. Amanda returned home, and his lordship waited for Howard's coming out of church. What the devil, Howard, said he. Did you mean by giving us such an exhortation? Have you discovered any affair going on between any of your rustic neighbours? The parson coloured, but remained silent. Lord Mortimer rallied him a little more, and then departed. But his gaiety was only assumed. On his first acquaintance with Amanda, in consequence of what he heard from Mrs. Abergwilly and observed himself, he had been tempted to think she was involved in mystery, and what, but impropriety, he thought, could occasion mystery. 
To see so young, so lovely, so elegant a creature and inmate of a sequestered cortex, associating with people, in manners at least, so infinitely beneath her, to see her trembling and blushing. If a word was dropped that seemed tending to inquire into her motives for retirement, all these circumstances, I say, considered, naturally excited a suspicion injurious to her in the mind of Lord Mortimer, and he was tempted to think some derision from prudence had, by depriving her of the favour of her friends, made her retire to obscurity, and that she will not dislike an opportunity of emerging from it. He could not help thinking. In consequence of these ideas, he could not think himself very culpable in encouraging the vices her loveliness gave rise to. Besides, he had some reason to suspect she desired to inspire him with these vices. For Mrs. Everly told him she had informed Mrs. Edwin of his arrival, an information he could not doubt her having immediately communicated to Amanda. Therefore, her continuing to come to the hall seemed as if she wished to throw herself in his way. Mrs. Edwin had indeed been told of his arrival, but concealed it from Amanda, that she should not be disappointed of going to the hall, which she knew, if once informed of it, she will not go to. This too, Lord Martima saw Amanda were, at least, the semblance of innocence, but this could not remove his suspicions. So often had he seen it assumed to hide the artful stratagems of a depraved heart. Ah, why will the lovely female, adorned with all that heaven and earth can bestow to render her amiable, overleap the modesty of nature, and by levity and boldness lose all pretensions to the esteem which would otherwise be an involuntary tribute? Nor is it herself alone she injures. She hurts each child of purity has to point the sting of ridicule and weave the web of art. We sun the blazing sun, but caught his tempered beams. The rose, which glares upon the day, is never so much sought as the bud and rub in the foliage. And, to use the expression of a late, must admired author, the retiring graces have ever been reckoned the most beautiful. He had never heard the earl mention a person of the name of Dunford and he knew not, or rather suspected. Little credit was to be given to her assertion of an intimacy between them, particularly as he saw her, whenever the subject was mentioned, shrinking from it in the greatest confusion. Her reserve he imputed to pretense, and flattering himself it would soon wear off. Determined for the present, at least to humour her affectation. With such ideas, such sentiments, had Lord Mortimer's first visits to Amanda commenced, but they experienced an immediate change as the decreasing reserve of her manners gave him greater and more frequent opportunities of discovering her mental perfections, the strength of her understanding, the justness of her remarks, the liveliness of her fancy, above all, the purity which mingled in every sentiment, and the modesty which accompanied every word filled him with delight and amazement. His doubts gradually lessened, and at last vanished, and with them every design which they alone had ever given rise to. Esteem was now united to love, and real respect to admiration. 
In her society, he only was happy, and thought not, or rather would not suffer himself to think, on the consequences of such an attachment. It might be said, he was entranced in pleasure, from which horror completely roused him, and made him seriously ask his heart, what were his intentions relative to Amanda? Of such views as he perceived, however, suspected him of harboring, his conscience entirely acquitted him. Yet so great were the obstacles he knew in the way of an union between him and Amanda that he almost regretted, as everyone does who acts against their better judgment, that he had not fled at the first intimation of his danger. So truly formidable indeed did these obstacles appear that he at times resolved to break with Amanda. If he could fix upon any plan for doing so, without injuring his honour, after the great attention he had paid her. Ere he came to any final determination. However, he resolved to try and discover her real situation. If he even left her, it would be a satisfaction to his heart to know whether his friendship could be serviceable. And if an opposite measure was his plan, it could never be put in execution without the desired information. He accordingly wrote to his sister, Lady Araminta Dormer, who was then in the country with Lord Turbury, requesting she would inquire from his father whether he knew a person of the name of Dunford, and if he did, what his situation and family were. Lord Mortimer begged her ladyship not to mention the inquiries being detected by him, and promised at some future period to explain the reason of them. He still continued his assiduities to Amanda, and at the expected time received an answer to his letter. But how was he shocked and alarmed when informed Lord Turbury never knew a person of the name of Dunford? His doubts began to revive, but before he yielded entirely to them, he resolved to go to Amanda and inquire from her in the most explicit terms how and at what time her father and the earl had become acquainted, determined. If she answered him without embarrassment, to mention to his sister whatever circumstances she related, lest a forgetfulness of them alone had made the earl deny his knowledge of Dunford. Just as he was quitting the grove with this intent, he espied Edwin and his wife coming down a cross road from the village where they had been with poultry and vegetables. It instantly occurred to him that these people, in the simplicity of their hearts, might unfold the real situation of Amanda and save him the painful necessity of making inquiries, which he, perhaps, would not answer without his real motives for making them the assign. This was what he could not think of doing. Instead, therefore, of proceeding, he stopped till they came up to him, and then with the most engaging affability addressed them, inquiring whether they had been successful in the disposal of their goods. They answered bowing and curtsying, and he then insisted that, as they appeared tired, they should repair to the hall and rest themselves. This was too great an honour to be refused, and they followed their noble conductor, who hastened forward to order refreshment into a parlour for them. The nurse, who
who in her own way was a cunning woman, instantly suspected from the great and uncommon attention of Lord Mortimer that he wanted to inquire into the situation of Amanda. As soon as he saw him at some distance, David, cried she, as well as eggs are eggs, unpinning her white apron and smoothing it nicely down as he spoke. This young lord wants to have our company, that he may find out something about Miss Amanda. Ah, there's her pretty face. I thought how it would be, but we must be as cunning as foxes, and not tell too much nor too little, because if we told too much it would offend her, and she would ask us how we got all our intelligence, and would not think us over and above genteel. When she heard we had shifted Jamie Houghton for it, when he came down from London with her, always must do is just to drop some hints, as it were, of her situation and then his lawsuit, to be sure, will make his advantage of them, and ask her everything about herself, and then she will tell him of her own accord. So, David, mind what you say, I trust you. Hey, hey, cried David, leave me alone. I'll warn you, you'll always find an older soldier good enough for anybody. When they reached the hall, they were soon into a parlour, where Lord Mortimer was expecting them. With difficulty, he made them sit down at the table, where meat and wine were laid out for them. After they had partaken of them, Lord Mortimer began with asking Edwin some questions about his farm, for he was attendant on the Tudor estate, and whether there was anything wanting to render it more comfortable. No, Edwin replied, with a low bow, thanking his honourable lordship for his inquiry. Lord Mortimer spoke of his family. Eh, God bless the poor things, Evan said. They were, to be sure, a fine thriving set of children. Still, Lord Mortimer had not touched on the subject nearest his heart. He felt embarrassed and agitated. Alas, with much composure, as he could assume, he asked how long they imagined Miss Dunford would stay with them. Now was the nurse time to speak. She had hitherto sat simpering and bowing. That depended on circumstances, she said. Poor dear young lady. Though the little cottage was so obscure and so unlike anything she had before been accustomed to, she made herself quite happy with it. Her father must miss her society very much, exclaimed Lord Mortimer. Tear hard, to be sure he does, cried nurse. Well, strange things happen every day, but still I never thought what did happen would have happened to make the poor old gentleman and his daughter part. What happened? exclaimed Lord Mortimer, starting and suddenly stopping in the middle of the room. For hitherto, he had been walking backwards and forwards. "'Twas not her business,' the nurse replied. "'By no manner of means, to be speaking about the affairs of her petters. "'Put for all that she could not help saying, "'because she thought it a pity his lordship, "'who was so good and so affable, "'so remain in ignorance of everything, "'that Miss Amanda was not what she appeared to be. "'No, if the truth was told, "'not a person she passed for at all, but, Lord, 
she would never forgive me," cried the nurse. "If your lordship told her it was from me, your lordship heard this, poor dear thing, she is very unwilling to have her situation known, though she is not the first party who has met with a bad man, and shame and sorrow be upon him who distressed herself and her father." Lord Mortimer had heard enough. Every doubt, every suspicion was realized, and he was equally unable and unwilling to inquire further. It was plain Amanda was unworthy of his esteem, and to inquire into the circumstances which occasioned that unworthiness would only have tortured him. He rang the bell abruptly and ordering Miss Abbeville to attend the Edwins, withdrew immediately to another room. Now there was an opportunity for Lord Mortimer to break with Amanda, without the smallest imputation on his honor. Did it give him pleasure? No. It filled him with sorrow, disappointment, and anguish. The softness of her manners, even more than the beauty of her person, had fascinated his soul, and made him determined. If he found her worthy, of which indeed he had then but little doubt to cease not. Here, every obstacle which could impede their union should be overcome. He was inspired with indignation at the idea of the snare he imagined she had spread for him, thinking her modesty or a pretext to draw him into making honourable proposals. As he sang in his esteem, her charms lessened in his fancy, and he thought it would be a proper punishment for her, and a noble triumph over himself, if he conquered. Or at least resisted his passion, and forsook her entirely. Full of this idea, and influenced by resentment for her supposed deceit, he resolved, without longer delay, to fulfil the purpose which had brought him into this, namely, visiting his friend. But how fair is resolution and resentment when opposed to tenderness? Without suffering himself to believe there was the least abatement of either in his mind. He forbid the cabbies. In a few minutes after he had ordered it, merely he persuaded himself, for the purpose of yet more severely mortifying Amanda, as he continuing a little longer in the neighbourhood, without noticing her, might, perhaps, convince her, she was not quite so fascinating as he believed herself to be. From the time his resistance at Tudor Hall was known. He had received constant invitations from the surrounding families, which, on Amanda's account, he uniformly declined. This he resolved should no longer be the case. Some were yet unanswered, and this he meant to accept as means, indeed, of keeping him steady in his resolution of not seeing her, and banishing her in some degree from his thoughts. But he could not have fixed on worse methods than this for. Effecting either of his purposes, the society he now mixed among was no different from that he had lately been accustomed to. That he was continually employed in drawing comparisons between them, he grew restless, his unhappiness increased, and he at last felt that if he desired to experience any comfort, he must no longer absent himself from Amanda, and also that. If she refused to accede to the only proposals now in his power to make her, he would be miserable. So essential did he deem her society to his happiness, 
so much was it a test from the softness and sweetness of her manners. At the time, he finally determined to see her again. He was in the last party at the Vels Baroness where he had dined, and on the rack of impatience to put his determination in practice, he retired early and took the road to the cottage. End of chapter 7, part 1